0: I have to say, I've never had so many online petitions come my way than on the issue of trying to stop an Apple store being located at the southern end of Federation Square. And I think it's the lack of community consultation in the decision that's angered people most, maybe, um, especially when one of the world's largest companies is going to occupy that space. Um, but I think. There's other issues at play. One of them is just the presence of commercial interests in those sorts of areas in the first place. And uh, the proposal at the moment is very live and what better person to speak to about it than Associate Professor Dr Dave Nichols? I knew I'd put the doctor in there. Associate Professor Dave Nichols, he's changed since we last... You've changed. I have changed. Since we last (laughs) (laughs) saw you. Um, But let's talk about commercial interests in public space. Over the summer, I headed to Northern Climes, I was in, in Russia and I went to Red Square and I went to Palace Square in St. Petersburg and Red Square has like the gum, you know, there's commercial interest right there, mm. front and centre, mm. opposite um, Lenin's That's what tomb. we need a gum. Well, we do. But And then Palace Square, nothing there. Fed Square, we have sort of retail there already. Um, but this idea of an Apple store has really angered people and I wonder, you mm. know, why do you think that is?
1: Uh, I think uh, two reasons at least uh, because, okay, two reasons at least. One is uh, it looks, uh, it sticks out like dog's balls in the in the perspectives that we see, you know, the, the artist's vision of the place and also there was no consultation. And I think, you know, people um, have a strong sense of ownership when it comes to Fed Square and so they should and, you uh, you know it's it it presents itself you know as a little bit of a it has a kind of a villagey feel in a sense it's mainly the the uh the commercial stuff that's there is largely you know cafe kind of stuff and it's also it is a place where people you know converge for for um important cultural events as well and yeah it just looks like a um it, it looks wrong and i i could see why people would say um you know, people are saying, well, Apple Store by all means because everybody loves Apple and, you know, it is there is a, a, a slight whiff of hypocrisy considering, you know, that um, obviously I'd love to know if only we could get a time machine and, and compare the people who are currently protesting against the Apple Store who in five years if it was built would be like, well, two years if it was built would be like, I'm just going to the Apple Store, you know, it's like... Reminds me of all the all the people who um, refused to travel on the uh, eastern uh, freeway. If the eastern freeway was built, you know there were a lot of people in the in the seventies saying, "I'm never going to go on that road." I think about two people have stuck to that. Um, so, there's that kind of thing about it, but. I think the consultation is the real... Well, because it, all
0: of a sudden it was just happening, wasn't it? And I, I think this idea that it, all the discussions happened, it seems behind closed doors, it seemed like the council wasn't even involved, which surprised me, but that the idea that it's a single retailer, it's not like it's a shopping centre with multiple retailers, it's one yeah. gets that spot, a yeah. prominent spot, so that makes mm-hmm. them special, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. Look... And it's – no, it's – yeah, so it's it's all of those things and it's I think it's something that um, the state government uh, has to kind of think in these terms of like, well, if we're going to do this, we've got to like rush this through now, uh, let it blow over before the election, you know, get people, you know, comfortable with the idea and we can, um, you know, in a few years uh, the plebs will be thanking us for what, what we've done with uh, bringing an Apple store, you know, iconic to uh, – to iconic Federation I Square. think you're supposed
0: mm-hmm. to be saying flagship or something. Is that what it's called, anyway?
2: I, I refuse, I refuse to chemistry. use that word. But it's it's also, it is, uh, I think there's a range of factors at play here, I think, Dave, as you identified. But uh, I'd imagine if an Apple store or any kind of major retailer kind of popped up in Federation Square in an existing building without a lot of fanfare, people mightn't really get their backs up about it necessarily. Mm. But it's the the fact of a a building being demolished, I think, and another, a new building being created there, together, of course, with the the lack of consultation. Do you think that is a a factor as well in why people are so upset?
1: Yes, and... And it does, uh, yeah, I mean, it looks it looks very different to all the other buildings that are presently there. Uh, so it would really, you know, which is whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I, I have no particular opinion. I think the building that is currently, you know, the Yarra building, which it's set to uh, replace, uh, has nothing special about it as far as I'm concerned. Well, they've
0: all got the same facade all the mm. way through. Mm-hmm. So when you think about Fed Square, you. The brands don't stand out that much, even though there are commercial businesses there. It's not like they're glowing or anything like yeah. that. They're behind the similar facade. The whole thing.
1: I think one of the one of the extraordinary things about this whole um, controversy is that people have feel such ownership with Fed Square, and they they have like from day one, the day that it was opened, you know, the the day before it was opened, everyone was like, oh, the biggest white elephant ever, and the, the day it was opened, everyone was suddenly like, I've I've always loved this place and um you know that that people feel such an ownership of the place they don't they don't even realize that it is essentially a a commercial space full of 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 things to in, to invite you in to draw you in and and to spend and it kind of it symbolizes a whole a whole thing about melbourne and actually about you know western cities that um we are invited every minute to confuse um, you know retail shopping that kind of experience with a, with experience of public you know public intercourse public discourse or public uh display or interaction it's it's all one it's all one mm. and the same and um in a few weeks i'm going to be uh starting my um you know starting teaching again and i'm going to you know, sadly berate a whole bunch of, you know, a few hundred uh, first-year students in my um, uh, urban history and uh, cities past and future subjects at uh, the University of Melbourne with the story of the Agora, and I will tell them then, as I'm telling you now, I don't know whether you say it Agora or Agora, but doesn't matter, you know, the, which is one of the cornerstones of democracy, which is, is, is a... Um, Uh, An open marketplace where people come and buy things. And it's, you know, in ancient Athens, people would come, buy things, exchange news with each other from, you know, people might be coming from uh, countries far away, which, you know, in those days was probably like, you know, 20 miles away. But in any case, they'd be, um, uh, uh, there'd be all this kind of discourse and political um, conversation and discussion. And it would be against the backdrop of, of buying in a marketplace. It's it's the foundation of uh, if not civilization, then you know, the democratic tradition.
2: Mm. It's interesting that because having looked at some of the public commentary, for example, below Dan Andrews <laughs> Facebook post about this mm. idea for, for a prominent store in, in Federation Square, a lot of the language people are using is about that commercialization of public space and yes. about having commercial interest in an area that's deemed to be, whether it is or not belonging to the city belonging to people who live here and people who come and visit but of course that happens everywhere there's a lot of even draw cards if we think about the the christmas windows in the city for example which Good, yeah. uh, are there
1: really for commercial purposes to get people looking at a certain shopfront. yeah that's right it's um and that, that's a tradition that's a that's an established tradition that's right uh, look there's always been a story about melbourne and um i'd I draw listeners' attention to Aaron Magro's uh, piece in the conversation last year about um, sort of the the history of public space or lack thereof in Melbourne and the control of public space. And it's definitely... It is about control. I mean, this is what... uh, It's one of the things that governments kind of do and, it's you know, you can look at it as as problematic and in in some ways it is, but it's also, you know, keeping people (laughs) safe (laughs) from each other. Um, The control of public space... Uh, the fear of, of what happens when, when a lot of people get together. I mean, the city square, which um, no longer really exists, but which was, you know, Melbourne's first really big open space public square, which, by the way, had a significant proportion of retail, had a kind of a, um, a weird sort of shopping mall in it, uh, and had you know actual shops out in the middle of the square was also designed to to break up any possibility of um, you know mass um, congregation of people presumably in protest um, but it had all bells and whistles it was um it was it was a really you know it was a 1980s kind of um, uh, piece of uh, excitement you could say bread and circuses but it was um, and in its in its way uh, Quite a success, in part because of the, uh, the the retail element. I think, which obviously you could take or leave. Uh, Fed Square is a sort of you know uh, City Square point two, and it's uh, it has it has a lot of similar uh, foci.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, Dave Nichols is with us. We're speaking about commercial interests in public space, really referencing the Apple store that is really contentious and still planned for Federation Square. And so I wonder why, Dave, that conflation has happened between you know broadening this debate from just an Apple store and the poor process that's been used by state government to kind of fling it on us um, and broadening it to this idea that commercial interest in public space is, is a problem
1: yeah uh, I, and I, I actually you know I, you know that I love to put a historical spin on things um, I think that in some ways in Melbourne in particular if you want if you think that a city has a kind of ongoing character that, that exists beyond you know generation through generations and so on and in, you know until thirty years ago trading in particular was really regimented like and you were people were constantly being prosecuted for trading outside particular hours or in inappropriate places uh that's that's less the case but i still think there's a little frisson of distaste at the idea of oh this public space is being used for commercial uh uses i and i think that you know in a way um one of the things that i think melbourne loses out from that uh, Attitude is uh, the possibility. And we have, you know, food carts and stuff now, which is a you know a new angle on that on that kind of thing. But we have uh, a lot of limitations on what can be uh, sold in you know in the parks and gardens of Melbourne. Uh, so that you know, there's a, there's a real distinction between um, publics, you know, respectable public space where you can re- recreate without being um you know affronted by someone trying to sell you something or someone giving the option of buying something uh and there's a lot of that around not not in not in the cbd itself but you know in the in the surrounding parks and so on uh so there's that there's that kind of that kind of aspect that i think is a to me is a kind of hangover of you know melbourne going back as far as you know the 1870s 1880s that that we we have this sort of thing we we know that we're a commit that The CBD is a commercial space. We know that that's where, you know, and so much of Melbourne's law is about, L-O-R-E law, is about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, promenading through the block and those kinds of things. Like, you know, really things set against, activities set against the backdrop of uh, commercial space. Uh, which you could say is because we didn't have a proper, you know, proper public space until relatively recently. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think in some ways it doesn't really matter where these things happen. Uh, it's, uh, it's about um, the, the nature of, of the city and, and what draws people into the city.
2: Yeah, and and I mean if, to, to look at the the example of Federation Square again. I guess um, specifically as the latest example of controversy around state government moves um, to commercialise public space or, or the different utilisation of of public space. Do you feel like the The state government was kind of um, surprised at the backlash it received at all from this and, and, I mean, the lack of consultation was uh, found to be... ..was put out afterwards, so that wasn't um, there at the beginning. But do you think they were surprised at the the
1: public backlash to this? No, I think they'd have to have been ready for that. I think they're just hoping that it will blow over. Mm -hmm. And it may
0: well it still might and i mean i suppose the you know there's there's a lot of hope out there that if this is a done deal and no i don't think many people are, are rolling over and saying it is a done deal mm, that it's still mm. very much in play but that at least the the building design should be uh you know put through a council process at the very least
1: the building design fascinates me i mean it's like it's a combination between it looks like a kind of 19 early 1960s library crossed with a mayan temple yeah, or something yeah if you haven't seen it really, you should look at yeah.
0: you should look it up
1: yeah I mean, you know, well, in people way- called
0: it a Pizza Hut or something.
1: Oh, um, Okay, yeah. sure. Well, you know, sure. Would well, that? Maybe we should get a Pizza Hut in um, in Fed Square. Um, look, I think that it's you know it, 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 that is part of the thing, but it's also the other part of the thing is that um, people will be surprised at their ability to get used to something. And I and I'm not I'm not advocating for it. Um, I, I, I don't think it's a great idea, but it's. Uh, you know, when you start to take, you know, being a historian is kind of, mm. well, it's, it's a consolation, but it also, it's a cons- mm. it kind of, it mm. amures you to the horrors of, of mm. existence, including an Apple store in Fed Square, and you, you start to go, well, worse things have happened.
0: Well, do, whose idea do you think it is to have it there? And does that matter?
1: All right, was my idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well in that case um i'm sure are you going to the uh, open melbourne event debating it tomorrow night at fedscore i think you should go along and let people know that it was your <laughs> no, idea no. i'm gonna
1: yes i think um, i think i'll have to fess up uh, <laughs> yeah no exactly
0: um, <laughs> he's not part of the open Melbourne event tomorrow night that I know of anyway, but you can live stream it or head along. It's at federation square uh in the edge theater there, and it's on from six o'clock and there's some really interesting people speaking at it there's like um I think planners there and architects and a whole lot of other people uh, discussing this idea, as yay or nay, um, whether this, this development should take place. So I think that should be really interesting um, happening tomorrow night. And uh, Dave, we'll see you again in a month. I hope. Okay.
1: Uh, right. if,
0: if you last that long, I'm not sure. People are out what the front. So I can see them said? out the front already what, waiting
3: what? for you. What are they going to do?
1: <laughs> I'm not Shake sure. Shake my hand? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No touching. You'll be here in a month. I've got faith. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Dylan.
0: And reducing harm from illicit drugs is where people really think we should be looking. It's been debated for years whether we should go the criminal route or not, and many argue that the criminalisation of drugs just isn't working. Um, Vice is a new series looking at this and many other issues. It's called High Life and they've got articles up already uh, looking at drugs in prisons through to sniffer dogs at music festivals and Madison Knorton is the lead reporter on the series and there's a lot more to come and it's great to have you on Triple R, Madison. No, thanks for having me. And I, I suppose we should just talk about the idea behind this series. It does feel very timely but what is it that prompted your High Life reporting?
3: yeah for sure. so I guess the the first big thing was um australian drug related deaths recently hit a twelve uh, a twenty year high so um the highest since sort of the epidemic um, around heroin in the late 90s. Um, And the thing that really struck me, having reported on this area quite a bit in the last year, was that Australian drug deaths are now 10 times that of Portugal. Um, And Portugal is sort of this model around the world for what could happen if you decriminalise drugs. So they decriminalised drugs in 2001 and saw a massive drop in their drug deaths. Um, And uh, over that same period, Australia has seen a massive rise in drug deaths. Um, So that kind of prompted us to think, like, why is this happening? Why is Australia experiencing this huge sort of spike um, in drug-related harm? Um, And as you said, like, uh, a lot of people are pushing for harm reduction. But, uh, but being a reporter in this area, every time you call a politician, um, there's just there's real pushback against talking about it. It does seem like talking about drugs in Australia, talking about evidence-based drug policy is really politically toxic. Um, so, we were, you know, if you're a reporter and, and a politician doesn't want to talk about something, um, you immediately want to talk about it
4: more.
2: And, and, and I mean, we've seen here in Victoria... Um, Daniel Andrews has come out recently and said that, um, you know, he would not support or implement pill testing at music festivals, for example, um, as I guess one example of a politician uh, not being willing to invest in one type of harm minimisation mechanism. Why do you think politicians are reluctant to talk about these sorts of measures? Is it kind of a cultural thing in in Australian society, do you think, or do they feel that it might um, impact on their chances for re-election and and the uh, populace simply wouldn't buy it?
3: Yeah, I think it is really, really interesting because there's a huge body of academic research um Backing pill testing as a really effective harm reduction measure, um, and there is um, a huge push by you know medical professionals, doctors, academics for it. Um, and usually, you know, you'd hope that those voices would have um, sway over politicians. But I think there's a real generational divide in how we talk about drugs and drug policy in Australia. Um, you know, last year Vice launched this project called the MDMA Census, where we went around the country and did pill testing and. Music festivals and parties and clubs all around the country with young people um, and just using like legal commercially available pill testing kits um, and the conversations we had with young people were really interesting you know they were interested in harm reduction they were interested in um, you know trying to reduce the harm around taking drugs but when you talk to to older people there does seem to be generally um, like a really different discourse around drugs it is very zero tolerance it is very you know if you take drugs and and you get hurt or you die like that that's the risk that comes with it um so i think it may come back to that there's there is sort of a you know a political advantage to seeming quite tough on drugs with um some some people in the electorate
0: and I, I suppose just to, to follow on from what you're saying there about attitudes towards um, pill testing or, and the like, what are the attitudes towards law enforcement? Um, you have an article looking at where sniffer jo- dogs have been rolled out at music festivals. What's the response from young people to that? Yeah, so
3: there's really, really fascinating research coming out of RMIT, um, Dr Peter Mullins, does a lot of research around sniffer dogs at music festivals and and the effect it has on young people. Um, I think the main... Attitude that that young people have um, about law enforcement, especially sniffer dogs, when it comes to drugs, is is fear. Um, and you know, some people may say that's the point. Um, and then other people may say, look, like it dissuades young people from going and getting help if something goes wrong. Um, and and what um, Dr. Malin's research shows is that um, it actually increases the likelihood that that young people will take drugs in a harmful way so so if young people see sniffer dogs at the gates of a music festival um it's likely that they may take all their drugs at once um because they're scared that you know, they'll get taken off them if they go through the, the sniffer dogs or they may dump their drugs and, and buy drugs from a stranger inside. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Marlin's research shows that it's not very likely that, that that will dissuade young people from drugs. They'll just sort of take them in a more harmful way.
2: And so there is an, an, an article of yours, as you just mentioned, that kind of focuses on our sniffer dogs, particularly um, at music festivals and the, the Rainbow Serpent Music Festival most recently where there were sniffer dogs at the gate. But you also, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, highlight the fact that Australia's drug-induced deaths are at the highest point um, in 20 years and and what's driven that I understand from, from reading your pieces and also more broadly is legal opioids, that's what's killing people um, kind of at the higher rates, is that correct? Mm.
3: Yeah, so um, benzodiazepines are the, are the drug that is most associated with um, with drug deaths in Australia, um, but it is it is quite complicated. You know that these aren't always people taking them as prescribed by a doctor. Um, it is you know there are people that are taking these legal drugs in in ways that are not. Um, Prescribed, um, But I think, yeah, that, that um, parallel to the US around opioids is really, really interesting and, and something we're keen to look into during this series because, you know, the, the US is kind of this, um, it, it was kind of the starting place of, of that attitude, you know, the war on drugs kind of attitude um, that in a lot of ways, if you look at the evidence, it does seem like Australia has taken that very hard line policy um, to drugs. But now we see the US at a state level, at least, doing some really interesting progressive things around drug policy. Um, you know, there's uh, San Francisco is talking about um, overturning historical convictions around cannabis now that it's been legalized. Um, so there's a lot of people who are in prison for for cannabis who potentially will be let out now that it's been legalized. Um, and yeah, and I think at a state-based level, how they've um, approached opioid addiction is really interesting as well so it'll be yeah it's interesting to see how Australia has, has sort of fallen behind even the US I guess when it comes to, to progressive evidence-based drug policy.
0: And Madison Knaughton's, um speaking with us she's lead reporter at Vice and their series on drugs it's called High Life you can find a, a link to the articles uh, on their website pretty easily if you want to read up on it but I, I suppose just talking about that zero tolerance approach approach Madison I wonder if we're a little bit um, following different leads as well maybe similar to the us where states are doing different things i mean we heard you know there's a safe injecting room to be trialed in richmond that's been a long time coming health professionals have been asking for it for a long time we've seen you know codeine no longer available over the counter to try and arrest sort of the harm um for some people with having that so readily available and i wonder If, you know, if we get medicinal cannabis here as well, which um, looks like that might happen, I wonder if we've got a similar, you know, we can't sort of pin down our approach anymore.
3: Yeah, for sure. I think that all of those measures, um, it'll be interesting to see how the effects of them play out. I know one of the things we want to look into during the series that we're doing on Vice at the moment is the impact of the codeine ban and and how that will sort of, play out in people's lives because, you know, there are a lot of young people that have chronic pain um, that that do have concerns around the codeine band. So I think that's super interesting. Um, And the medically supervised injection center is another thing we want to look into, like the politics of that and how that got over the line and whether it's something that can be duplicated in other states in um, other areas that are, that are looking for um, sort of interventions um, around, around um, heroin and opioid use. Because I think it is, it is really interesting, because at the moment it seems like um, that medically supervised injecting centre, it was all of these factors that came together and it was sort of almost lucky that it happened. Um, so, it, you know, could that be replicated elsewhere? That's kind of one of the things we want to look at.
2: And so, um, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things that that are still to come in your series. Is there anything else, um, any other areas you'll be looking into specifically as, as part of this?
3: Yeah, for sure. So the the idea is basically we want to look at the whole tapestry of, of drug law in Australia. Um, I am very guilty as like a young reporter who is writing about young people of focusing in a lot on pill testing. Um and that, you know, that is it is quite a privileged issue to to look at. Um and there is a lot of other drug policy that affects young people outside of cities. Um, so that's what we kind of want to do, look at the broad spectrum of what's going on, um, particularly around use, um, incarceration for illicit drug offences, so um, the number of people behind bars for illicit drug offences under eighteen has jumped fifty percent since two thousand and eight, um, and we also want to look into the other end of the of the experience, which is um, rehab as well. So we have a piece coming out this week that I'm really um, excited for, which is about sort of this exodus of, of young people seeking treatment um, for drug addiction um, who are having to move from Melbourne to the Northern Territory because waiting lists in Melbourne. are
0: so well. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us, and we look forward to uh, seeing what comes next. No worries. Thank you for talking to me, uh, yeah. Madison Connaughton, lead reporter over at Vice. Um, High Life, is there? Uh, uh, series really on on drugs and there's a a few other things there that we haven't got into, particularly drugs in prisons and you can um, head to their website to have a read
2: if that's your interest. It's currently playing at Chapel Off Chapel is Nina Simone Liberian Days, a new musical that charts the three years Nina Simone spent in that West African state in the 1970s. The play stars Ruth Rogers Rogers Wright and is written by Neil Cole and follows on from their former very successful collaboration in Nina Simone Black Diva Power. To talk more about it, we're very pleased to be joined in the studio by playwright Neil Cole. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming in.
2: And so this follows on, as I just mentioned, from the um, previous play, Black Diva Power, which uh, covered kind of the, the period in Nina Simone's life from I think 1958 to, to 65. Is that
4: right? Uh, it was. It was to do with the time when she moved into the civil rights movement. So mm. she went from singing you know, good, nice songs to suddenly writing this incredibly powerful, highly motivated by the current environment. So it's really in the mid-60s. So she was transformed by a Marxist by the name of Elaine Hennesbury, uh, who wrote a play called... Raisin in the Sun, but also wrote this song called Young... She didn't write the song, she wrote the poetry, Young, Gifted in Black. So it was a movement into that and singing songs like Mississippi Goddamn, mm. uh, Strange Fruit, which she didn't write actually, but Strange Fruit uh, Four women. So there was a series of songs that she, she just converted to so we took that play to edinburgh and went and unbelievably well we got four stars we sold out we just was fantastic um and so that was really emanating from ruth's work on nina she'd done so much work on nina and so i wrote it oh, she didn't do the civil rights stuff i did that i converted it uh and then while we're in uh edinburgh we every night we would sit down and you know you have your post-mortem, as you do, and and we talk about this idea of the time she went with Liberia. Mm. And it's such an extraordinary thing to do, which is told in the play, but I think most important is that it was an escape from America, from the United States mm-hmm. in 1974 in the... The wake of all the... Well, mostly it was the Vietnam War and, and Nixon. And Nixon. And yeah.
0: I was going to say, I mean, when I saw the title of this play, I was like, Nina Simone, ah. Liberian days. And yeah. I did I don't know about that period of her life. People that know the Nina Simone story might know more. But what is it about that time that was, was so important to her life and well, work? Well, it
4: was living... Well, I didn't know this until I started to investigate either, but the... Liberia it was settled by African-Americans and they actually took it over. So it was sort of an imperialistic thing. And mostly they, were ta- they took it over because they were free-slaved and people... Down south wanted to get rid of them. Basically, they didn't want them. It was probably exaggerating, but I think it's probably reasonably accurate. So they they set it up. So when she went there, she went there out of self exile. Really, she was asked to go, and she went, and she loved it. Uh, that 's coupled with without wishing to go into it too much because it 's unfair to her. She was extremely depressed in melancholically depressed she was bipolar she had manic depression like I do. She was extremely depressed in america she 'd lost two of her closest friends, who were um, Martin Luther King jr and Malcolm X she was next door a neighbor of malcolm x mm-hmm. they 'd both been assassinated. Uh, Medgar Evans had been killed. Uh, lots of things had happened which really affected her very, very badly. She became pretty harsh and bitter, and she'd, in fact, she would have liked to have become a, a revolutionary herself, but she was a singer. And so she went to Liberia and went she was high. She lost her depression. She became very, very high and lived a life accordingly, which is outlined a bit in the play. Though we're trying to be careful with those sort of things because people draw the wrong conclusions. So it was like the ultimate escape for her, I would say, from what my observation of it. She loved it. She always loved it and uh, always looked at it with great, great affection. Mm. It wasn't a good money spinner for her. Uh, which was unfortunate. But there were so many other things about it which show uh, where you are no longer in a minority and in a majority how much self-esteem you get which is salutary for Australia, I, I was going to say I, I, I wish Malcolm Turnbull could turn up to this that racist and because last night we had a photo of five African people and I thought, oh, my God, we've got a, an African gang at our show because uh, <laughs> there was five of them. <laughs> um, and I, I just think that's probably salutary to look at somebody like her who was so famous and so strong, still felt this overwhelming inferiority complex, lack of self-esteem. She had that because of the Depression and then suddenly she goes to Liberia and for the first time in her life Mm. she was a majority
2: yeah, well, I think I'm not sure if it was her as quoted as saying this or, or someone maybe affiliated with her, but it, it felt like around that time in sort of the early to mid-70s that Mississippi goddamn had been kind of, a, a, you know, a terrible thing for her career because there was so much, uh, you know, it was deemed to be so controversial in, in what it was saying about race politics in the United States at the time. But then she goes over to, to Liberia, as you say, a completely different place in a way to to escape from the United States and I guess the... Um, lack of success that came out of the, the civil rights movement, relatively speaking. Was that a prolific time for her musically? I mean, was she playing music much in, in mm, Liberia
4: yeah, while she was yeah, there? Yeah. She wasn't She wasn't writing I don't think as much, although I must say this because it's the large part of the project and don't, people shouldn't be frightened. there's no Nina's songs, but Ruth has written the majority of the songs mm. and she has done an absolutely brilliant job. I... Wouldn't have allowed her to do it if I known it was happening, because <laughs> I'm the writer in between I get told to get lost. <laughs> but, but um, I think it's unique. I think it's unique cause it's the black woman writing songs about somebody she loved, Nina Simone. And I think it's unique. I don't think anywhere would you get something like this. Um, her songs and her singing—she's So she's like Nina Simone singing, mm. which is hard to do because she has a very distinctive style. Yeah, yeah. But you know, going back to the civil rights movement and and, and the problems that when she wrote "Mississippi Goddamn," it was in response to a shocking murders mm. of four girls and all the other things that happened and went wrong. And I think what happened was they expunged the Jim Crow laws, which were the discriminatory stuff. They did a lot of things, but it, it never really altered. Like even today, there's more. so many black people in jail over in the United States. Mm. The poverty is still really, really high and great. And I think that's what she was saying when she left. She was saying, well, all of this dream we had, that that somehow we we're going to be liberated, it just didn't happen. Mm. It happened in theory, and it happened to some extent, and it probably wasn't as bad as what it was. But it wasn't that much different for them. And the without wishing to go too far on this, because I get a bit carried away. But what what her. Her close friend, who died at 35 of pancreatic cancer, that is um, Elaine Hannesbury, was always saying was, Nina, it's not the civil rights movement. It's the, the system. It's, she was a Marxist. I, I am too. But she was saying, no, it's the, it's the system which is at fault. And if we address the system, then that's the only way we're going to get equality. And I think that that's what Nina thought by the time she went to Liberia. Now, I've read everything there is and listened, you know, all that stuff on Nina Simone. That is nowhere to be found. She didn't actually say that. But what she did say was the dream that we had hasn't been achieved. And so she left and was so much happier in Liberia. And it's interesting
0: that she... Was happier there because Liberia was far from a perfect society as well.
4: Well, well, I think that was the subsequent, I'm not an expert, but the subsequent uh, civil war that they had there was really about the West, the African American elites versus the others, and she was one of the elites, not in a, you know, overt sense but they all they were the ones who who acquired the money the status and did all that stuff so it's replicating what happened uh in 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 a sense though without the prejudice and discrimination mm. so I, I i think that that she was part of that society there uh she was certainly welcomed with open arms and she she just played in coffee shops and that sort of thing. Mm.
2: Mm, yeah, and I mean, it seemed to be um, a really um, sort of vibrant time in, in Liberia's history as well. Those few years, because it was 1980, there was there was a coup, there was a storming oh of the um, of the presidential uh, mansion, and um, the place kind of changed pretty quickly. Over, I'm no expert, but from what I've read, it changed pretty quickly after that. But during that time, when Nina was there, there were people like Hugh Masakela who started up Studio Ones. So there was a lot of it was a really fertile ground for music at the yeah. time.
4: And, and for her, it was fantastic because she didn't have to do concerts. She wasn't doing concerts, which had put a lot of stress on her. And she was as high... She was very high, so she didn't have... So she was having... As she, she said, she was looking for her husband and I think she was doing it by a war of attrition with the amount of men she was involved with. Um, she also did other things that weren't particularly good. She didn't get on well with her daughter which was, I, I just don't understand it, but she was, her daughter speaks very badly of that mm. time. But I think that she was very high and manic and irascible and, you know, what wouldn't counter anybody getting in her way and she just enjoying herself, you know, enjoying and, and the sort of music that was, she sang mm. and did. But also the place, according to what I've written, of her her descriptions, which are florid, Descriptions of what it was like. She would just loved it. It was like walking out and absorbing and eating the sunlight. Just about it was so, which is also part of a high. You can when people are very high. The the. Uh, the beauty of a sunrise that is ex- dramatically exaggerated. And she had everything at that stage. As mm. mm.
2: you yeah, just tuned in, we're speaking with playwright Neil Cole all about the production Nina Simone Liberian Days currently playing at the Chapel of Chapel. And we were hoping to have Ruth Rogers-Wright in here as well. Um, it's incredible I didn't know that she'd written songs for this play. I mean, she's been um, essentially playing Nina Simone and, and performing either sort of as her or in productions um, sort of closely associated with Nina Simone for, for many years now. Um, what was it like when you first heard those songs that she'd, she'd written for this
4: play? I, I must say, just to put in a plug for Ruth, you know, she lives in the flats in Carlton. She was a single mum. And we wrote all this. I wrote it, but we wrote it together, if you know what I mean, I, like the, the idea of it. She's a very, very talented woman that is totally underdone uh, and I've written the plays and produced them in order to have a give her something to do not not because I'm a big fan or otherwise of Nina Simone I became a big fan of hers when I found out about her at work in the civil rights movement as for she wrote a poem uh, Ruth at the end of uh, which um, in the normal course of events as a writer, anybody who's written a poem will just cut them out straight away because everybody could think they'd write poems and they can't. Including, and, and anyway, she wrote these poems just fantastic, like just so insightful, not not only of of Nina Simone but of life itself. You know? And then she decided, she's wrote, wrote these songs and uh, she's worked with Mark Fitzgibbon who's a great, unbelievable, and together they were able to write something that was pretty amazing. I was shocked, to put it mildly. Mm. One because I didn't know that that was happening, uh, which is <laughs> quite typical. I get told later. She obviously on. knows you well. <laughs> yeah, I get told later on. I get told later on what what's happening. Uh, but but also, if I could just say, I know I don't know whether it sounds uh, bloody pathetic, but. I don't drink alcohol. When we were in Edinburgh, every night she'd have one little glass of vodka and we'd sit there and we'd construct this thing about Nina in Liberia, just going through every possible permutation of what we could say and what we couldn't. The conclusion was was extremely difficult to write it. Mm. But... I think just when people like her that are so talented and so experienced get the opportunity, you know, black people in particular in this country, when they get an opportunity to express, you know, something beautiful can come out of it. So the fact that she wrote the, the, the songs... Um, I think it's all part of her and getting that opportunity to do it. Mm. But they're, they're truly beautiful songs. There's mm. no question of that. And she sings them really, really well. Mm.
2: Um, we are almost out of time, but Nina Simone Liberian Days is playing at the Chapel of Chapel until February 18th. Tickets are available via the, the Chapel of Chapel website, I'm sure. And uh, are there any plans to extend the season at all or to take it beyond this uh, uh,
4: What I'm hoping is that, that Ruth and Mark will just take it and be able to do it every weekend somewhere, this thing called Nina Simone Liberian Days, and just do it. And people can come be a constant thing. But other than that, I know we might get a tour out of it. I, I don't know. We'll try the with the touring mobs and see what can happen.
2: Great.
0: And uh, you want to extend uh, the opportunity for a double pass to triple R subscribers to head along to one of the Nina Simone Liberian Days shows? That's right. Um, And I don't think you have a particular date in mind here. No, no,
4: any date, Tuesday to Sunday.
0: Yeah, so we can fetch you up. You're pretty into uh, access in the arts. Neil, you want someone who, you know, wouldn't otherwise have a chance to head along to see a show to to get these tickets. Um, So if you um, feel like you fall in that category, you wouldn't be able to go. I mean, going to the theatre is not... The cheapest thing in the world, um we want you to call up nine three double eight one oh two seven that 'll make Neil Cole smile and um getting um, bums on seats people that really you know, really need to be there. So Somebody um, like
4: that, but two double passes. So.
0: Two double passes, there you go. Right.
4: So uh, somebody who can't afford otherwise to go would be nice.
0: And Triple R subscribers, um, 93881027. And it's really great to have you on, Neil, and um, good luck with the season.
4: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website
3: at rrr.org.au.